If you're visiting, we've been looking through a book in the Old Testament of the Bible, uh, written by a man called Nehemiah, and it's like his journal, really, or like his Facebook newsletter feed, in which he records some events at his time. And I'm not going to rehearse all the things we've covered in previous weeks, but we're talking about something that happened 2,461 years ago, and, uh, but I still think we can learn from people of the past. As a, uh, we live in a culture that, where most people only read stuff that was written in the last few hours and, and yet it's actually there's something very beneficial about reading a book that, that was written uh, by many different people but over a period of many hundreds of years and uh, there's a lot of, lot of wisdom by people who have walked with God before we have done in our age. Their technology might have been very different, they might have had a different language and a different culture but they were still human beings and uh, the issues are the same. Now I guess all All of us will have gone to school at some time in the past. Do you remember going to school? Whether you loved it or hated it, you went to school. And uh, I want you to imagine a scenario where you started at a new school. And uh, you get a bit bullied, but by the end of the first term, you've managed to get in with one group of people that you can hang out with at break and lunchtime. And that's a safe place for you to go. They accept you and you can go and be with you, be with, be with them at those times. And so if you need to go you know, to the loo during the break, you know you can go and find that group again and you're accepted there. But then something causes you to notice that smelly kid who always is on his own or her own in the playground, looking at the ground, avoided by everyone else over by the fence on the edge. And the crazy idea comes into your head to leave the group where you've got your established standing and to go across and talk with that rejected kid. I mean, really, are you going to do that? Of course, that happens to be the kid that also goes to the church that your mum and dad take you to. Isn't that difficult? These are complicated scenarios, a moral dilemma, isn't it? And probably never really thought through quite in that way. Now, actually, that's something of the scenario that we have with Nehemiah. He was uh, uh, something like a seventh-generation migrant, a Jew living in this great empire of Persia. His great-great-great-great-grandfather, or something like that, had been forced from his homeland and taken to Babylon, engulfed in this huge empire. Uh, Nehemiah had grown up there, learned the language and all the rest, and yet at the same time had been going to synagogue, reading, uh, hearing the scriptures read out, worshipping with other Jews, marrying a Jew, having Jewish children, and uh, caring about these things. And so... Uh, We uh, come to this situation, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be reading in a moment from Nehemiah, the very end of chapter 1, just the beginning of chapter 2. So if if you open the middle of your Bible, you'll probably find the Psalms quite quickly. And if you go back from the Psalms, I think you've got... um is it Job before that? And then you've got Esther. No, you don't have Esther. It is Esther. And then you've got um, Nehemiah. And then you have Ezra. So if you get to Ezra, you've gone too far. So, sorry about all these long names. And um, so we have uh, Nehemiah, it's 445 BC, and he is uh, um, a good Jew. He's engaged with his society, he, uh, but he's not assimilated with it. He hasn't been absorbed. He's not lost his own culture and identity. His Jewishness had been preserved, and his faith in the God, the Jewish God, the Yahweh, had been preserved. 
And, and so, uh, but he's also got great promotion. So as we end chapter 1, it says, I was cupbearer to the king. He was a very important part of the security detail of the emperor. And so in the beginning of chapter 2, it says, In the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, so as I say, that's 445 BC, when wine was brought for him, that's the emperor, I took the wine and gave it to the king, which was his job. He had to taste it so the emperor knew he wasn't going to get poisoned. I had not been sad in his presence before, which we've discussed in previous weeks. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid, uh, which again we've discussed before, so we won't again. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, well, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven, because this was the big question. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him, the king, send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Father, I want to thank you for the word of God, and I want to pray that we will be helped to relate what happened a long time ago to our lives today. And we want to thank you that human beings have ever been the same, but you have ever had a heart to rescue us, to save us, to rebuild our lives, to take what's broken and make it new. And we thank you, you're still doing that. And we thank you for this and pray you'll do more of it today for your glory. Amen. So, they say that only dead fish always swim downstream. And this was a day when Nehemiah really had to make a choice to swim upstream. And it was a daring thing to do. And this question he asked the king, is the rock in the bucket? He had other questions that he would ask as supplementary questions if this, answer got, this question got a positive answer. But it was the big question. It was what chapter 1 leads up to, the praying that he'd done, the messages that he'd heard. He'd known for many years, it was 142 years since the walls had been knocked down and the gates burned with fire. He'd probably known this fact. He must have known this fact. But something happens, which is recorded in chapter 1, which made him care about the fact these walls were broken down and so he it came as he prayed about this he thought you know I think God wants me to be the person who goes and organizes the rebuilding of this city and how am I going to do that because I serve the emperor maybe that's the opportunity maybe I'm serving the emperor because God's put me here because this is the question I can ask and so the big question the rock in the bucket question is oh king would you actually send me uh, to do this to rebuild this city wall he didn't know how things would turn out but God answered his prayer and he was in a sense saying I'm in this established group I'm accepted I've got this good high status position but I but some fellow Jews are living far away a place I've never been to but I've heard about and read about all these years all my life in Jerusalem they're 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 living in they're in poverty they're living in a place of, of of rejection they're cast down they're looking at the ground they're on the edge of the playground right on the edge of the empire rejected and despised 
Christ. Here am I, right in the centre of the empire, in the place of privilege. And God is asking me to give up being in the playground, in that established group, the, 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 the accepted people, the people, the beautiful people that everyone wants to be with, and to go to the edge of the playground, to the rejected children over there. And he accepted that calling. Aren't we glad that he did that? Isn't it good that people do that in our world? Because he decided to walk across the room, just as our God decided to walk across the room. He didn't just stay in heaven, in the glory of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But Jesus, of the three of them, agreed, yes, I will go and take on humanity. I will walk across the room. I will come to the edge, far away from the centre of love and joy and and influence and power. I will go and, and, and voluntarily not use my power but be weak and be exposed to the weakness of uh, humanity. And we know that when God put himself under our power, we know what we did to him. We killed him. And uh, now, of course, that's slightly different to uh, to Nehemiah, although he did get into quite a bit of trouble. So, like like Jesus, Nehemiah walked across the room, and people still do. I picked up in this week uh, the book by Nigel Measures. Nigel was a member of this church, and over 20 years ago, 23, 24 years ago, he felt God leading him to give up. I think initially he took a career break from the Metropolitan Police, didn't he? And went for a year, I think that's how it was. Cornelis was very involved. Um, to South Africa, to Cape Town. But once he was there, he was persuaded, yeah, God was leading him to go, to go there. And I think he came back and he resigned altogether from the Metropolitan Police and, and went there. And he's been there ever since. And God led him to marry a South African girl, Lisa. They've had children. And he was involved with planting a church. Many of you know this, this stuff. And... Um, uh, and God has greatly used them. And I was reading a chapter in the book that Lisa wrote, where they, she said that one day Nigel came back from a conference and said to her, you know, God's spoken to me that we are to actually go and live on the township where we're planting a church. Now, no white people lived in the township. And she initially said, oh, yes, they had two children at that time. Well, they've still got two children, but they were very young, like four and nearly two, Ben and Katie. <laughs> And uh, she said, oh, yes. And then afterwards was thinking, ah, scared. You know, who's ever done this before? These are dangerous places. There's a lot of violence. We'd be white, the only white people. What's this going to be like? And um, a few days later, she had a dream in which uh, uh, there was a a tiger, uh, sorry, a lion attacked her. Uh, And then afterwards, she had no harm to her. And, uh, and then she asked Nigel if she could go away and uh, visit with some friends. Um, she went to their church for a week, uh, an old friend, and pray with her about this. And she went and they went with her to church in this place uh, elsewhere in South Africa, Afrikaans surface. And the man preached from Psalm 91, who was preaching at this church. And it has a verse in there about the lion won't harm you or something like that, okay? And so her heart was rested and she came back really committed. And then, and then they really looked for somewhere to live. And as it happened, they never did go and live in the township. They could never find somewhere to live. But, but God, in a sense, had done like, what, like he did with Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember the story, if you know the Bible, where Abraham, God tells Abraham to go and and sacrifice his son and, I, and, and it's a completely mysterious command why on earth would he do that and we mustn't get distracted to discuss that story but in a sense it was a test would you, would you give that which is 
you think God has given to you? Will you give it back, as it were? And um, so in the event, they, they didn't go. But they'd had to resolve in their heart that they would be willing to go. Jesus didn't just resolve in his heart that he was willing to come to earth. He really came. And Nehemiah really went to Jerusalem. So uh, we see that God had a heart for Jerusalem. He cared for that city. He cared for the people who were rejected and despised. And he introduced his care to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, who'd known the fact of the city being broken down, started to care about it. Now, most of us also live probably in Adelstone, Chertsey or surrounding areas. We live in small towns. And for Nehemiah, who lived in the capital of this empire, Jerusalem was a small town. And it was out over there. And I want to... uh, But he was given a love for that small town. And, you know, when you live in a capital city, if you live in London and you maybe go to the... The, the wonderful theatres and maybe you, maybe you have a job in a big bank or a big headquarters of a company or in, in the civil service or something like that you can feel it's quite important it gets, gives you some kind of esteem and a sense of, but to, th- to think that you would go and live and work in, in a small town can seem quite uh, maybe a bit discouraging or not very attractive, I mean our communities don't seem especially important do they I mean wh- when you're telling people where you come from, I mean what do you tell them about to make it feel like where you come from is you know a bit more special than it maybe sounds like when you say Adelstone or Chertsey I mean what do you say what do you how close it is to Heathrow how close it is to Heathrow you say oh yes we I've done that one you say yes we're just near Heathrow because people have heard of Heathrow what else do you point to Thorpe Park. Thorpe Park. Oh, that, I've done that one as well, because people often have been to Thorpe Park. She said, we're just near Thorpe Park. And, um, Brooklands. 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 I haven't used that one. Brooklands, yes. Windsor Castle. Windsor Castle, yeah, not far away, yeah. We have an abbey before Westminster Abbey. I've not used that one. Churchy has an abbey that was there before Westminster Abbey. Well, okay, yes. Yeah, we used to have an abbey. Okay, yeah. Before any of us were born, right? Anything else? Near the River Thames. Yeah, I think that's one I've used because it's unusual how far south the River Thames comes here and people are unaware of that. I like, I like that one. Yeah, we're very close to the River Thames. Where the M3 and the M25 cross. Well, yes, I don't know whether that's... I don't know whether that brings any increased esteem, but uh, it certainly helps people know where you are. The other one I like is we're near where the Magna Carta was signed. That particularly impresses Americans because they really rate the Magna Carta, whereas we've all forgotten about it. And... um, so, um, but you know, I, 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 I thought I'd look it up. There's a, a website, and it actually, it's got all the stats drawn from the uh, or, uh, the um, the ONS, which is the Government Statistics Agency, for built-up areas all throughout the UK, listed in their order from largest to smallest. And this website's called Love My Town. Isn't that great? You know, Jesus loves our town. Jesus loves small towns, and He loves our towns. And uh, so, in, according to that, this is based on 2011 census for the UK. There are 7,727 built-up areas in the UK. Right, 7,727. Now, how many are? are um, how many do you think of those have more than 100,000 people in them? Have a guess. 
20, 50? 100. Okay, it's actually 81 have more than 100,000 people in them. So that's obviously London and such like, okay? Uh, How many do you think have over 25,000 people in them? Of the 7,727? Pardon? Seven, did you say? 7,000? Okay, it's actually just 421. Sorry, 412. Being dyslexic there. Just 412 built-up areas have more than 25,000 people. That includes the more than 100,000 people as well. So that means that's about, together, that's about 6%. So 94% of all the built-up areas in Britain have less than 25,000 people in them. It's a lot, isn't it? There's an awful lot of small towns, even in countries which are very urbanised, like Britain is. So how many people in Adelstone? Now, according to Facebook, I got this advert, this is on a slide, Elspeth. I was on Facebook, and uh, we manage a page for the church, Beacon Church, Adelstone and Chertsey, and it said, promote your business locally, reach up to 63,000 people in Adelstone. And I'm thinking, way, my goodness, Facebook. Uh, I'm a little more dubious now about the number of subscribers Facebook claims to have, because they clearly have 63,000 subscribers in in Adelstone alone, when the population is only (laughs) 15,883. So, (laughs) it's stunning, isn't it? (laughs) And uh, Chertsey's uh, 13,753. Respectively, number 635th and 715th out of the 7,727 built-up areas in the UK. Now, I want to ask ask ourselves a question. Does God our Father care about communities like Adelstone and Chertsey? You bet he does, right? And and we learn in the story of Nehemiah he cares about Jerusalem, and we also learn in the Bible like he cares about Nineveh and all these other places, and we we believe he cares about the favelas of Rio and about the villages in Lesotho. He cares about Aleppo in Syria, where there's this terrible, terrible fighting uh, right at this time, and other places in Syria, and so many places we can't... I couldn't list them all and us not get away on time today. And he cares about Adelstone and Chertsey. You know, Jesus was a small-town man. You read the Apostle Paul and you'll see how he went to big cities. But you read the life of Jesus. He was a small town man. Fifteen times in the New Testament, Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. On two further occasions, he's called Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And on three occasions, he's just called the Nazarene, meaning a man from Nazareth. Okay? Now, Jesus was brought up in Nazareth. It was his hometown. I don't know, what's your hometown? You proud of your hometown? Jesus is. I am. I'm a migrant, according to the recent um, campaigns, because I was born abroad. I was born in The Hague, or Den Haag, as you say it properly, or something like that anyway. And uh, I like to bring that out. I'm proud of that. Have you heard the story about the seven-year-old boy who was picked up from school by his mum, and he said, Mum, where do I come from? And she thought, oh dear, he's asked that question already. And, uh, and so she, she's um, thinking and um, sort of pulls together a sort of birds and bees account, you know, of where he came from. And, and then says, so do you understand? He says, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, Owen at school says he comes from Wales. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, you get these uh, confusions. Anyway, you know, when Jesus grew up in Nazareth as a carpenter, 
And Nazareth, we know, was just a few miles away from a much larger settlement called Sepphoris. You've probably not heard of Sepphoris, even if you've read your Bible a lot, because it's not mentioned in the Bible. It's a much bigger settlement than Nazareth. It was where Herod Antipas had his capital for Galilee, and yet it's, it's not mentioned in the New Testament at all. Jesus almost certainly would have done jobs there. I mean, he was a carpenter. He was just a few miles away. It's There was a lot of building work there. It was a big centre. He would certainly have done work there, but it doesn't get mentioned in the New Testament. Nazareth does instead. And uh, um, so uh, people do jobs in small towns. In small towns, people really, they don't travel necessarily. I know a lot of people do travel up to London from our area, but people actually make things in our area or they grow things or do stuff like that. They really do do things like that. When I was up at New Day, I saw a poster on one of the toilet blocks. It it says this, 102,414 hectares of wheat Norfolk grows would make 1.2 billion loaves of bread. I thought it was curious. I think it's great, isn't it, that we grow so much wheat just in Norfolk. Isn't that amazing? 1.2 billion loaves of bread. That is a heck of a lot of bread. I'm just wondering what they do with it instead. Which says they would, it would make. I'm thinking, okay, well, what, what do you do with it? Perhaps it's all made into pasta or something. What do you think? I don't know. I was mystified. But um, small towns are places where a lot of things happen. And as in that, as as in our own day, in that day, small towns were despised. You remember when um, uh, uh, Philip uh, Philip came to Nathaniel at the beginning of John's Gospel. It's on a slide, Elspeth. Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from there? It's it's just you know we we tend to think oh Adelstone, Chertsey, pooh, you know what about London, you know or Brighton or something like that or Rio or New York or Paris. We're impressed by these things. But God says, yes, good things come from small towns. Isn't that good? And you'd have thought Jesus would prefer to be called Jesus of Jerusalem, at least, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd have thought that would happen, and yet he's called Jesus of Nazareth. He's nowhere called Jesus of Jerusalem. He's called Jesus of Nazareth. Because Father arranged, God the Father arranged for Jesus to grow up in the small town Nazareth, a community of probably just a few hundred people. Now, uh, I, I think Nehemiah faced that same challenge. There he was in the centre of power, called to go to somewhere very much on the periphery, somewhere the emperor wouldn't really esteem as something very important. But we care about Adelstone and Chertsey. And all the small towns in the world, because God cares for them. Yeah, and uh, Nehemiah shows that Jesus shows that. I mean, when Jesus left his hometown to fulfil his ministry as saviour, did he go off to Rome? No. Did he go off to Athens, centre of thinking? No. Did he go off to Corinth? No. Didn't go there. Did he go to Damascus? I mean, that was quite a big. No. He doesn't go there either. He does visit Jerusalem, but he actually only visits Jerusalem. Most of his ministry was up in Galilee, amongst these small towns. In fact, it says, Matthew 4.13, again it's on a slide, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. So when he started his public ministry, he went to another small town in Galilee, called Capernaum, which was by the lake. And I've got an aerial photo of of, um, Capernaum now. You can see... They've excavated part of it. I expect it's a bit bigger than that, but it would just have been a few hundred people. And uh, that kind of funny spaceship-looking thing in the middle there, 
Can you see that kind of space? That's actually a church building up on stilts, so it's not damaging the uh, ruins underneath, and supposedly built above <laughs> Peter's house. Because, you know, Peter, this is where Peter, where Jesus went and healed Peter's mother-in-law, do you remember, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and you'd have thought, well, Jesus, would he'd be really keen to get to the big cities and do lots of big <laughs> miracles there. But no, he doesn't. In, in the scriptural record, most of the miracles Jesus did were done in Capernaum. Most of the recorded miracles were done in Capernaum. And most of the others in other places up in Galilee. And so, uh, you know, we do healing on the streets in Adelstone. And people are healed in Adelstone. Isn't that good? It's because God loves God loves, God loves the people who live in small towns. In fact, healing on the streets was started in a small town called Colrain in Northern Ireland by uh, the guys in the vineyard church up there. And as I've mentioned already one Sunday, we're going to be engaging with some material from that church in, from September onwards as a church, streaming some stuff which we feel can be really transferable for us from another church in a small town. So what about the rest of the New Testament? I know I'm jumping away from Nehemiah, but I just enjoyed this. The first miracle after the ascension, remember Jesus had died, he'd been resurrected, he'd appeared to the disciples, then he ascended to heaven, and he says, wait till the Holy Spirit comes on you. They wait, the Holy Spirit comes in the book of Acts, and that's chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Then chapter 3, the first miracle, um, uh, they see this man at the beautiful gate of the temple who's lame. Uh, This is Peter, I think James was it. They see him there, and Peter sees him and something again he's probably seen this man numerous times he probably begged there regularly it's like those you know big issue sellers they have a regular patch they're always there but something that day the holy spirit just goes boom this is the time god's got a gift for this man a gift of healing and uh, and he looks at him there's some kind of eye contact and um And then Peter says this, it's on the slide, Elspeth. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk. Isn't that wonderful? The early church owned his small town beginnings. And you might say, oh, that's just a one-off. I don't... Well, Acts 4.10, the next thing. Uh, then, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Isn't that brilliant? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If you keep reading Acts, there are four more times when Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. The early church embraced the small town origins of Jesus. They didn't. It was despised, but they embraced it. And remember, Nazareth was not even a place where Jesus was accepted. It was his hometown. Do you remember when he went back there? They rejected him. And, and, so, and even then he takes the name. I mean, you'd, have, you'd really thought you'd want to ditch the name after that, wouldn't you? You know, you'd been rejected by that very town, and yet you... And you might say, oh, well, that's because Jesus didn't choose that. That's what other people said about him. Well, how about that that's not the case? Because you remember, it's a very famous story. Most people in the world have heard of this story about Paul meeting God on the Damascus Road. Do you remember that? Paul meets, uh, he has this amazing experience on the Damascus Road and, and Jesus is now resurrected Jesus. He's not under... Uh, there's, he, he's now back in, in full power, as it were. He hasn't got the Nazareth City Council uh, PR uh, team trying to govern what he says. And uh, Paul is stunned. What's happening here? They're having this amazing supernatural experience. Who could it possibly be? And, uh, and so we read 
Um, Who are you, Lord? Paul asked. I am Jesus. Where? What? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he says. Uh, Completely freely. Nobody twisting Jesus' arm to... And he takes the name for himself. He owns the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Does Jesus love small towns? Yes, he does. Say it with me. Does Jesus love small towns? Please say it. Ask the judge. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And even on the cross, there they crucified him with two others, John 19, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near that city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. Three languages, because you're talking very multilingual place like most places in the world. And uh, you probably have seen paintings, if you look at these things at all, as a picture. These kind of paintings, traditional fine art paintings of the crucifixion. Jesus is never fat, is he? It's, uh, um, he could be, couldn't he? And he's always very white as well. Anyway, the INRI, have you ever noticed the sign above his head, INRI? And puzzles, what on earth is that about? Well, that is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in the, the initial letters of the Latin inscription. They obviously felt they couldn't fit in all three of these statements in Aramaic, Latin, etc. So that's abbreviated to that. But King of the Jews, he is a, Jesus was born a Jew and he is a Jew. He's still got a body, right? Jesus still has a body. He will have a body for the rest of eternity is what the Bible teaches us. And that is a Jewish body because ethnicity continues into the new creation. So he is ever a Jew. Friends, I just want to say in passing, to be anti-Semitic is to be anti-Christ because he's still a Jewish man, right? So it's ludicrous to be anti-Semitic and it's utterly wrong. And great evil has been done, sometimes, unfortunately, in the name of the church in the centuries. So, uh, well, you might say, well, God would use Jesus, but he wouldn't use me, you object. Well, God actually um, loves to use, as well as loving small towns, God loves what the world considers us to be small people. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29... Paul writes, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I don't care who you are. God is able to use you. In fact, he wants to use you. In fact, it may be easier to use you if you think you're nothing because the problem for God is the people who think they're something, right? Because otherwise, you could be boasting. So we love what our God our Father loves. He loves small towns, so we love small towns. When uh, Going back to the Nehemiah story, uh, some people had gone back from the empire, from the Persian empire earlier, a few years earlier, with Ezra, and they had rebuilt the temple. But they had not got round to rebuilding the wall. They were still under reproach and whatever. Nehemiah went back to rebuild the wall. I think there's a priority there. As we work loving our small towns, the first thing to do is to build a temple. It's to build a place where heaven meets earth. It's to build the, the people of God, the community of God. Because otherwise, what have we to bring to our towns? We need to bring that where we are 
uh, connecting heaven to earth. But then we actually want to actually build our community. How do we engage with our world but not assimilate? Well, actually, the, the exiles to Babylon were told something by God, what they had to do. The prophet Jeremiah told them. So this is what Nehemiah had been busy doing up to this point. And we read it in Jeremiah 29 from verse 4. It's on the slide, Elspeth. Uh, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Listen to the advice. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. I think I might have muddled up something in there, but you understand. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Just quickly hit these, these instructions here. Build houses and settle. Be committed. Maybe buy into your location. Don't think you're just passing through. I know there's a sense of scripture that we're uh, pilgrims. We are passing through, that we're looking for the new heavens and the new earth. That is absolutely true. But, but let's make sure we actually embed where we are. There's a place for actually um, uh, owning and doing something. And I think that's been one of the good things, actually, about buying property as a church. I know we had the hall in thought before, and that was also good to, to have. It's a sense that we, we are committed here. We are here for good. Do you understand? We are here for good. And we are seen then to be here for good. And then plant gardens and eat what they produce. In other words, be productive where you are. Do the things, have a job, do something. Be productive, produce something. Be a blessing to others through your work. This is something that is enjoined upon us in Scripture. Of course, that might could be volunteering. It might be other things. I mean, Magnus and Pam, you were part of a group getting trees planted in your road or something, weren't you? Is that right? So Pam organised, you organised that then, did you? So... They're not there yet, but you've got a grant to get trees planted in the road. Well, that's good. You're being a blessing. You're seeking the prosperity of the street where you live. We can be the people who take a lead in doing that stuff. That is kingdom work. And, you know, it's good for us to spend our money in local businesses. It really multiplies local wealth. You know, when we go to Sainsbury and Tesco... A lot of the money you spend is sucked out of our area, goes off to head office, whatever. But when we spend money in a local business, we actually are ploughing money into our local community because the money, the profits stay in your community. And the, the, the financial multiplier is really good, actually. So we should wish to do that. And it's, it was good to be able to use a local air conditioning guy to do the AC at, uh, at the Beacon and stuff like that and a fairly local uh, building company. But... These, it's, it's important to think about these things. I know, you know, I use Amazon and, uh, you know, other online retailers are available, um, etc. But it's, but it's good sometimes to, to, to get local. Do you understand? To invest, to buy in, to plant gardens, eat what they produce. And then it talks about marrying and reproducing. Well, I think this speaks to us about mission. We want to see the people of God increase. Just sorry, I just had an illustration for the previous thing. You know, they'd arrived in an exile there. Are they going to use their tools or not? You can keep your tools nicely in their wrapper they came with, okay? Or you can get your tools out and use them. And what God is saying to us, don't, don't leave the tools in the wrapper. Get them out and put them to work, right? Be embedded in your community and, and put them to work.
And let's multiply and then seek the peace of the prosperity, a peace and prosperity of the city to which I've called you. We have been blessed so we can be a blessing. That's very good, isn't it? Very good. Mm.